These are boom times in Colorado. Shiny new skyscrapers are going up in Denver. Nearly 100,000 people move to the state every year. It has one of the lowest unemployment rates in the country. It seems like everything's great. But some people in the halls of power worry. We have one of the five best economies in the United States. We have one of the five worst education systems. There's a lot of money in Colorado. It just doesn't make its way into government budgets. It affects Colorado's kids and college students. Unless there are fundamental changes, there will no longer be public funding for higher education in the state of Colorado. In city halls, from Williamsburg in the south to Leadville in the mountains, life can be tough. I can't pay competitive wages. I can't buy new fire equipment. I can't pave my streets. All these fiscal problems get traced back to one thing. Colorado is the only state in the country where legislators don't have the power to raise taxes under any circumstances. They say it ties their hands, makes it very hard to do what they think the state needs. At some point, and I don't know when it's going to be, we're, we're just going to have to stop funding some things. This was the vision of one man. Douglas Bruce. He was a regular citizen who led a tax revolution 25 years ago, a revolution that made Colorado a shining star for fiscal conservatives everywhere. Bruce led a campaign to give citizens more control over their government. From school boards to the state house, he thought Colorado would be better off if politicians had less power. I am a crazy man. I'm crazy about my country. And many say that the law he wrote, the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, known as Tabor, many people say it's worked. I believe Tabor was the best step towards freedom that we saw in our time. From Colorado Public Radio, this is The Tax Man. I'm Rachel Estabrook. Over the next three episodes, we'll tell you the story of how Colorado tackled head-on one of the biggest questions that we have in politics to this day what role government should play in our lives. We talk to people across the state, and we're going to show you how this experiment in citizen empowerment has changed Colorado. And we'll tell you the strange and sometimes unbelievable story of the man who started it all, Douglas Bruce. Stay with us. If you live in Colorado and know anything about politics, you've probably heard about Douglas Bruce. He's the most profiled guy ever. And to some people, he's a hero. To others, he's the cause of the state's money problems. And he can seem larger than life. At least that's how it felt to my colleague Nathaniel Miner and me as we worked on this story. Yeah, then we met him, though, and he's not. Yeah, I mean, we got to this radio studio in Colorado Springs, and then Bruce pulled up in his old Honda Accord. And he was pretty unassuming. He kind of looked like a grandpa. He was wearing those khakis, remember? Yeah, a plaid button-up shirt, gray hair. He's tall. He almost fills up the doorframe. Right. But 25 years ago, I mean, he was certainly a force. He would run these super public, controversial campaigns to limit taxes. And he's really smart, and he's not modest about it either. I know American history more than any average room filled with 
500 people. Yeah, so what I most wanted to know is what motivates him? Why does he distrust government and politicians so much that he fought the government for so long? So what we learned is it goes back to his love of American history. Douglas Bruce actually quotes from the U.S. Constitution verbatim in conversation. The Constitution says in Article 28, and Article 6 says, I'm going to quote it verbatim, and that's guaranteed in Article 1 as a federal constitutional right. Right. One of his shticks is to call out people who don't know the Constitution that well. Like when he'd speak to the Chamber of Commerce or something in the campaign for tax limits, he'd quiz people in the room. What are the first five words of the Bill of Rights? And there's always going to be some idiot that says, we the people. I said, sir, we the people is not five words. After a little showing that people don't know squat about their heritage, I'd say the first five words are. There's this long, awkward pause because he wants us to finish the sentence. My face started getting really red. I haven't read the Bill of Rights since high school civics, probably. Yeah, same. But at least you gave it a shot. I did. In order to form a more perfect union? Unfortunately, we know now that is the preamble to the Constitution. Well, first five words of the Bill of Rights. What profession are you in? We're in the First Amendment business. Right. Here. The first five words of the Bill of Rights. Uh, I will burn it into your head. He pulled out a little edition of the Constitution from his front shirt pocket. By the way, it's signed by Clarence Thomas, the Supreme Court Justice, and Rand Paul, the extremely fiscally conservative senator. And Bruce asked me to read the first five words. Oh, right. Congress shall make no law respecting. That's six words. Congress shall make no law. Congress shall make no law. That's the answer. And we will never forget it now. That's a limit on government. That's what tax limitation does. It's a limit on government. You can't say you're free if the government can take away everything you have without your permission. So to Douglas Bruce, American history is one long struggle against the government and for personal freedom. And so he saw limiting taxes as the best way to do that. To Bruce, if you're paying high taxes, the government owns you. You don't own the government. So he wanted to use a ballot measure that voters would approve to take away politicians' ability to raise taxes on their own. But it almost didn't happen in Colorado. This tax revolution, it could have happened somewhere else. It's wild to think about now, but Douglas Bruce isn't from here. He's from Southern California. He graduated from high school at 16, law school by the time he was 23, and then started a career as a prosecutor in Los Angeles. But in the 80s, he decided it was time to leave. So he planned road trips all across the country to figure out where to go. A lot of people move here for the mountains, but that wasn't on his mind. So I looked at demographics and water supply, taxes. Of course. You know, climate and bugs and the economy and anything that I could think of. I'll be honest, I get the bug thing. The lack of mosquitoes here is pretty great. So on one of these road trips, Bruce comes to Colorado. He drives up Interstate 25. So I drove on, got to Colorado Springs after dark, stayed in a crummy motel on North Nevada. I woke up in the morning and uh, opened the door of the motel, and bam, there was Pike's Peak. Pike's Peak. 
the 14,000-foot mountain that inspired America the Beautiful. He finally noticed those mountains. And it's the moment when he falls in love with his new home, Colorado. He also liked the architecture and the commercial-free classical radio station. And he fit in with the politics. I like the fact that it had a reputation for being conservative. It wasn't No place is going to be conservative enough for me. But it was on the right side of the spectrum, literally. Douglas Bruce moved into a Colorado that's really different from what we know today. Colorado's politics were much more conservative back then. Republicans dominated the legislature, and the economy depended more on energy. This is the Colorado everyone knew from Dynasty. It was the number one show in America about an ambitious oil tycoon who lived in Denver. But that dynasty didn't last. Colorado went through a massive oil and gas bust in the 80s. And this was before Coors Field and the fancy airport that we know today. Downtown offices emptied out and it felt like a ghost town. The economy was shrinking, but what really made people mad at the time was government kept growing. There were some enthusiastic citizen activists in rural Colorado who were trying to push back on taxes. But they weren't having much luck until Douglas Bruce showed up to their meetings. I just spoke up and I didn't say, here I am, appoint me your new messiah. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. But that's exactly what he was to those activists like Diane Cox. And so here came Douglas Bruce and he was an answer to prayer. She and her husband were peach farmers who ran a failed anti-tax campaign. Just after Bruce moved to Colorado, they were ready to quit politics. And others in the movement, like Fred Holden, worried that it would peter out. But Holden says once Bruce got involved, it was clear he was different. Then all of a sudden, we found out that he was working on it a lot better than the other people that were sitting around the table. Then we found out he's a lot smarter. Then we found out he was an attorney. Then we found out he was assistant prosecutor. Something else set Douglas Bruce apart, too. Colorado politics had a reputation for being polite and reasoned. But Douglas Bruce was aggressive, single-minded, in-your-face. To him, this wasn't about the details of tax policy. It was a battle for freedom that required every weapon he possessed. And to get that freedom, he wanted to give voters the power to raise taxes. He wanted to rewrite the relationship between government and the people and take away a lot of the power from politicians. That's when the politicians Bruce wanted to target got ready to fight back. More after a break. I want to tell you about this other podcast that you should check out. It's called Civics 101. It's from New Hampshire Public Radio. Remember how I couldn't remember the first five words of the Bill of Rights? I probably should have listened to this show more. They dive into basic concepts in U.S. government in ways that are really understandable. Like, I love this episode about the debt ceiling. This thing that's always clogging up the government now didn't exist until about 100 years ago. The purpose of the debt ceiling originally was actually to empower the federal executive branch 
to borrow money without having to go back to Congress each time. And Civics 101 will tell you, is the debt ceiling even necessary? Would the U.S. get rid of it? Check out Civics 101 from New Hampshire Public Radio, wherever you get your podcasts. From Colorado Public Radio, this is The Tax Man. I'm Rachel Estabrook with Nathaniel Minor. We're talking about a tax revolution that started in Colorado nearly three decades ago. A landlord named Douglas Bruce had just moved to Colorado. He met some other anti-tax activists and told them he had ideas about how to limit government growth that he could write into a ballot measure. I simply pointed out what needed to be done and they said, well, give us a draft. He wrote the first draft on a typewriter in his dining room in Colorado Springs. And he brought it to one of their meetings, just plunked it down on the table. This was before Google. He came up with a nearly fully formed ballot measure to ask voters to limit taxes. Bruce was inspired by anti-tax godfathers like Howard Jarvis, who pushed a property tax limit in California. They showed that the ballot box, direct votes of the people, could decide big things. But Bruce wanted something even more comprehensive, because when the tax limits aren't, governments have found ways around them. Like in California. Property taxes there have stayed low since that ballot measure passed, but local governments found other ways to make up the difference. Yeah, so it's kind of like squeezing one end of a balloon. The part you squeeze gets smaller, but the other parts get bigger. In California, fees and sales taxes went way up to make up for its stagnant property tax revenue. Douglas Bruce wrote a measure that tried to squeeze the whole balloon. He didn't want government at any level to grow as fast as the economy. He wanted to minimize what government did in people's lives. Okay, so Bruce is done writing, the rest of the group is done tinkering, and they're ready to go to voters. The last thing they need is a name. And Douglas Bruce thought of this document as a new Bill of Rights that declares the unalienable rights of taxpayers to protect them from the reach of government. So the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights was born. That's kind of a mouthful. Yeah. Fred Holden made it a little pungier. I said, I, I like acronyms, and they shorten things. So it looks to me, with Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, it could be called Tabor. So he said, OK, let's call it Tabor. Tabor. Tabor gets on the ballot in 1988. It's got the kind of catchy name. It sounds big and profound, Bill of Rights. But Bruce was largely on his own. He poured thousands of dollars of his own money into the campaign. And it wasn't enough. It lost big. On election night, Bruce sounded furious. And he did something that's really weird for someone in his position to do. He blamed the voters, basically said they didn't know what was good for them. And when the tax increases come, don't bother calling me for a reaction. I'll give you your sound bite right now. Listen carefully. I told you so. It was a really strange thing to do, but put yourself in Bruce's shoes. The question he's asking is, why wouldn't you want more freedom? It made no sense to him that they voted no. Bruce thought that the next time, they'd get it right. So he didn't quit. Colorado was about to find out that Douglas Bruce never quits. He made some changes to Tabor and tried again. And it lost again in 1990. But the vote was a lot closer than the first time around. 
Coloradans were getting closer to saying yes to the controls over government that Bruce and some others wanted to see. And the people in power started to get scared. I viscerally and intuitively felt the ground changing out there. This guy, Eric Sonderman, ran those first two campaigns against Tabor and Douglas Bruce. In baseball terms, we had to get a hit every time at bat. Doug Bruce just had to get a hit once. We had to win every time. Tabor's supporters didn't say right away whether they were ready to go to bat a third time in 1992. Fred Holden, for one, he was exhausted. Well, we really did try. We tried twice. But Douglas Bruce was determined. And then he called up and said, I've got the next amendment started. Oh, my gosh, another two years of my life. (laughs) So ramping up to the 1992 election, Bruce got to work revising his message to voters. This was Tabor 3.0, bigger and better. And the people who were fighting Tabor this whole time, the no campaign, they realized that they were going to have to defeat this thing again. Bruce was more than just a nuisance. He was threatening everything they wanted Colorado to be. They were led by a man who has a radically different view than Bruce about what the state could do for people. Well, <laughs> my name's Roy Romer. My title is ex-governor, not, <laughs> not anything more than that. Grandfather. Romer was governor during the Tabor campaigns. He's a Democrat. In terms of ideology, he's basically the antithesis to Douglas Bruce. Bruce thinks that government should be as small as possible, and Romer believes government actually makes people's lives better. Romer had big ideas about what Colorado should be after the oil and gas bust in the 80s. He thought government investment was key to transforming the state and setting it up for success. Romer got that faith in government during his childhood. It was the Great Depression. His mom handed out checks as part of Roosevelt's New Deal. They were a savior in his tiny hometown on Colorado's eastern plains. I got to tell you, it was very, very tough in Holly, Colorado. And grasshoppers and fences totally covered by dust. Romer made a name for himself fighting for public schools in particular. His own economists predicted that if Tabor passed, schools would be devastated. They estimated with the first version of Tabor that schools would have lost more than $100 million in one year. Romer warned voters that Tabor was the most serious threat to government he'd seen in his career. In the campaign, he gave nine speeches a day at one point, trying to fight the momentum building for Tabor. And the campaign got heated. Bruce demanded Romer debate him. He would crash press conferences and shout questions at the governor. And apparently at one of these events, Romer's bodyguard grabbed him. So Bruce starts screaming, battery, this is battery. He kept calling politicians on the other side liars. Bruce and Romer were both zealous about their side of this argument. And having met both of them, I know they're still passionate now. And Romer's pushing 90 years old. But campaigning against Douglas Bruce isn't like campaigning against anyone else. A lot of politicians end up saying things that are very un-PC, things that can make them look bad and that they regret. Like this one time, Romer compared Bruce to a terrorist throwing a bomb into the machinery of government. Do you remember that? (laughs) I don't remember that, but I think that's probable uh, because uh, I thought what he was doing was very dangerous to the whole structure of government. So Romer said he was just trying to do what he thought was best for the state. I saw this man who had 
a flame in his eye. It was passionate. He was over the top, really, I thought. And that's what would cause a terrorist comment. That's unfortunate. I shouldn't use that. But Douglas Bruth did not have a balanced view of what I thought was good for the society. Bruce had a weird sense of humor, though. So this is what he did after the governor's comment. So it was a point of ridiculing him. I got a business card that said, uh, Douglas E. Bruce, terrorist. Like, he handed out a business card that said he was a terrorist. Until the Oklahoma City bombing, and then it didn't feel so funny anymore. So Bruce was building up a reputation as someone willing to take on the government, not just with policy, but with really public provocations. He was willing to do and say almost anything, like this one confrontation he had with Colorado's Secretary of State. She wasn't just another politician he didn't like. She was a gatekeeper for Tabor. She needed to approve Bruce's amendment in order for it to be on the ballot. And Bruce was convinced that she had it out for him. So her name's Natalie Meyer. And in 1992, several months before Election Day, she dealt Bruce's side a major setback. She said some of the signatures that they'd collected to support the campaign weren't valid. The Tabor couldn't be on the ballot. So Bruce held a press conference in Denver, just down the hall from Meyer's office. He's wearing a red tie and a little American flag pin on his lapel. Reporters are gathered around. The woman has obviously a mental deficiency. You heard me. You heard me. I thought you were leaving. At this point, Meyer's walking up the hallway toward Bruce and the reporters. The TV camera pivots to her. She looks very 90s, plaid suit jacket, big gold earrings, and she's furious. You can see the reporters smirking like they've been waiting for this. It wasn't the first time Bruce parked himself outside of her office, but other times she'd ignored him. This time, though, she did not hold back. The woman has obviously a what? Now, as I was saying. A mental something. Doug, I think that you've gone a little bit ballistic. I think you need to examine whether your cause that you are saying you represent is being hurt by your verbiage and you can't really continue this, can you, without being in court? When I met Meyer recently, she said she probably should have stopped herself, but she didn't apologize for it either. And I thought, enough is enough. And whatever he said, what, what about my brain? It was, I was mentally deficient. mentally deficient. Well, I was a lot of things, but I've never really thought I was mentally deficient. This secretary of state was an unlikely opponent for Bruce. She's a Republican with signed letters from Ronald Reagan in her basement. But political parties don't really make a difference to Bruce. They're all part of the establishment, trying to raise people's taxes. Bruce ended up winning this argument. Meyer's staff re-examined the signatures and found that enough were valid. She let Tabor back on the ballot. So that's a small victory against the government. As much as Bruce's style could turn people off, it was working. And he was about to get a lot more help from things way outside of his control. More after a break.
I always wonder where my favorite pieces of music come from, like what inspired them. And there's a great podcast that dives into this. It's called Centennial Sounds from Colorado Public Radio. Brad Turner, how do you describe the podcast? The way we always talk about it is it's Colorado performances of music by 21st century composers. And we think about what you're talking about an awful lot. We like to hear about what the story is that drove the composer to write the piece and the story of how it came together. And you have this tape that I want to play that's amazing. Who, who is this woman? Her name's Caroline Shaw. She's in her 30s. She's the youngest composer ever to win the Pulitzer Prize for music. And this is one of her newest pieces. And I talked to her a little bit backstage about how it came together. Uh, she had read this book by the poet Claudia Rankin and just fell in love with a few lines. She says this thing I thought it was so beautiful. Sometimes, Sometimes you read something Sometimes and a thought that was floating around in your veins organizes itself into the sentence that reflects it. This might also be a form of dreaming. Wow, you can hear how the words on the page turn into this vocal piece. You're really creative with sound in this podcast. <laughs> Thanks. We, we try to be. We want to give people an inroad to discover this new music. These are some of the most talented musicians anywhere. And uh, we're just excited about these stories and the recordings. And that's why we put it out there. It's called Centennial Sounds from CPR Classical and Colorado Public Radio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. From Colorado Public Radio, it's The Tax Man. I'm Rachel Estabrook with Nathaniel Minor. The tax revolution had picked up steam in Colorado going into the 1992 election. After two failures, Douglas Bruce and his supporters fine-tuned their constitutional amendment and their message to voters. They'd failed when they talked about limiting taxes. So Bruce didn't want people thinking about what less taxes could mean to their neighborhood parks and schools. In this campaign, the limit taxes message went out the window. I said, well, let's change the bumper sticker. Instead of limit taxes, we're going to say vote on taxes. Bruce thought that was a much more positive sounding message. He started to talk about Tabor like it's the return of the founding fathers. Tabor, he says, is about freedom and the kind of America you want to live in. This is about owning your country. Douglas Bruce would put the big ideas behind Tabor on these little pink index cards and pass them out on the street. Fred Holden, who worked on those campaigns, he still has one. What we believe by Douglas Bruce. We believe in limited taxes, not unlimited government. Choice, not coercion. We believe in the supreme power of the people, not the special privilege of the politicians. Free enterprise, not state socialism. We believe in democracy, not bureaucracy. We believe in individual responsibility, not collective guilt. We believe in an omnipotent God, not an all-powerful state. It's time to declare your beliefs. It's time to send the politician a message they won't forget. It's time to stand up for America. It's so dramatic. It's just like the biggest language. It's big. <laughs> but the Taxpayer Bill of Rights that they were selling was more than just platitudes. It was more than 1,700 words of policy. So this is when we're going to explain some of the particulars of Tabor. All right, let's do it. Stick with us. It's complex. I mean, today, 25 years later, some people who are supposed to follow Tabor admit that they still don't really understand it. Okay, so the most important thing is that, yes, it does say voters have to approve every tax increase. It also says the state can't take on new debt, can't borrow money without voter approval. 
So that highway project that's going to take 10 years to pay off, voters get to decide if it'll ever get off the ground. And Tabor is very precise about how that vote should be framed. So when you ask voters for money to pay for something, you actually have to start the ballot measure with, shall taxes be increased by X millions of dollars? Or billions sometimes. Right. Douglas Bruce knew that doesn't encourage people to vote yes. Tabor also put a cap on how much money governments could keep. If they took in too much, they'd have to refund it to voters or ask their permission to keep it. And if the tax revenue went down one year, it couldn't just bump back up the next. Yeah, it really took me a while to understand why this part was so important. Let's say the economy tanked and tax revenue fell by, say, $2 billion. The next year, the economy recovered and tax revenues went back up $2 billion. But the state couldn't keep that money. They'd have to give it back to taxpayers. Voters didn't necessarily understand any of this because the campaign's message was so streamlined. You get the final say on tax increases. That's it. There was very little talk, even among politicians and editorial boards, about the rest of it. And one more thing. This was as permanent as a law could get. It would be written into the state constitution. And of course, all this was by design. Bruce told a reporter in 1992 that politicians' mouths would drop open when they understood what the law was actually about. And most of them wouldn't actually understand it until years later, when the economy did crash and the state government was in crisis. There are no unintended consequences. None. Zip. Zero. And they get very angry when they hear that, but that's too bad. I knew what I was doing, and and I don't regret anything that's in there. I wish I could have put in more, but I had to make a calculated decision as about what would get 51% of the vote. In 1992, that was the message. Vote on taxes. Tabor supporters had other things going for them. They had more money than in their earlier losing campaigns when they got outspent 10 to 1. And more Republicans in the establishment had started to embrace Tabor. It was getting mainstream. But Romer and his opposition forces had hope too. It wasn't just Democrats and their traditional allies lined up against Bruce. Whatever the impact might be, if it is approved... Here's a public radio report from the campaign. It has already caused many in the business and financial community to hold their breath. They thought Tabor would make it harder for Colorado to attract new businesses. Moody's threatened to downgrade the state's credit rating so Coloradans would pay more interest on government debt. And that scared people. So that's the scene in Colorado back in 1992. Businesses lined up with unions and Democrats and other people that they'd usually be fighting at election time. And on the other side, you have Douglas Bruce and other tax activists and some Republicans. Just as important to this campaign, though, was what was happening outside of Colorado. Remember, 1992 was a presidential election year. George H.W. Bush against Bill Clinton and against a tycoon from Texas who ran as an independent. You got to take away Congress's right to raise taxes. Now, there's a radical idea. Ross Perot was a populist in a campaign that was all about the rough economy. He said voters alone should have the ability to raise taxes. That idea sounded familiar in Colorado by now. These boys are drinking too much. You got to take the bottle away from them for a while at least. Now, if they need more money, just put it on the ballot and let the owners of the country sign off. Perot obviously didn't become president, but he did very well in Colorado. His message worked here, and it was in the mind of voters as they opened up their ballots and considered how they would vote on Tabor. On election night, Douglas Bruce had his favorite meal, Chinese food with a fortune cookie. According to a reporter in Denver, the fortune read, you will make a change for the better. 
It was a good omen on a night when his hard work and sacrifice over six years would come to fruition. But the polls were really tight. Neither side was sure what would happen. Bruce got to the party at the Embassy Suites in downtown Denver around 8.30. So when I got there, people started applauding. And I hadn't heard the results on the radio, and they said, you know, it's now, we're, we're at 49%. Then the more conservative parts of the state added their results, and it was clear. Tabor had won. Bruce remembers the first words of his victory speech. The liars lost. The liars lost. The people won. The people won. Crab went wild. What did that feel like? Uh, relief. Uh, vindication. Um, it was, uh, you know, if I die tomorrow, they can't take it away from me. I am a crazy man. <laughs> I'm crazy about my country. I'm crazy enough to believe all those things we were told in school about the consent of the governed. We the people. People in this hotel ballroom are wrapped, all eyes on Bruce. They'd waited six years for this party. We have taken away their crowbar, and for once, it is the politicians who got nailed. One member of the movement, Fred Holden, remembers talking to a friend the next day. He said, uh, Fred, how does it feel? I said, how does what feel? He said, how does it feel to live in the freest state in the nation? I said, it feels really good. Across town from the Tabor Victory Party, Governor Romer's staff woke him up in the middle of the night. They said a thousand people had gathered outside. They were mad and Romer needed to lead them. But this wasn't about Tabor. It was about a different amendment, one that was even more controversial at the time. It targeted gay rights to make Colorado one of the most anti-gay places in America. And it probably helped Tabor pass because it distracted the opposition all the way up to the governor's office where Cole Finnegan worked. Tabor was an afterthought. I, I remember, I'm sure I was surprised, um, but again, I don't think we had really paid as much attention to it as we should have. He says that partly because, as it turns out, Tabor's legacy has lasted so much longer. The U.S. Supreme Court struck down the anti-gay amendment just a few years later. The day after the election, Romer and his staff started to take a closer look at Tabor. And they quickly found those other parts of the amendment that we talked about a few minutes ago, the mechanisms that Bruce had built into Tabor to make sure the government couldn't grow as fast as the economy. They didn't like what they saw. Whether or not you can vote on taxes is the frosting on the cake. The cake itself is full of all kinds of crazy schemes and diabolical plans on how to limit spending and, in fact, to effectively dismantle government. And Governor Romer realizes that this little amendment is powerful enough to destroy his dreams for Colorado. I did a lot of good in 12 years. That was something I failed in to prevent that from passage. Maybe I couldn't have. Maybe nobody could have. But I, I look back on it and say, 
That's the worst thing that happened in 12 years that I was governor. Sorry I couldn't prevent it. Just a few years later, Romer and Bruce's fortunes both turned. The governor who fought Tabor and lost was more popular than ever. Douglas Bruce became the one under attack. I'm sure that someday, sooner or later, they're going to figure out some way to put me in jail. I have no doubt about that. He was sure that he'd be put in jail. And he did end up in jail. Next time, we explore how things got worse for Douglas Bruce and how the state has fought back against Tabor. The Taxman is produced and reported by Nathaniel Miner, Ben Marcus, and me, Rachel Estabrook. It's edited by Robert Smith. Ramtin Arablui created the music. Fact-checking by Jennifer Karchmer. Thanks to Kelly Griffin and everyone at Colorado Public Radio who supported this podcast, and to the NPR Story Lab for its support. Thanks also to the television stations who generously allowed us to dig through their archives for tape used in the podcast. CBS Denver, Nine News, and Denver 7. And for more news and music from around Colorado, subscribe to the Colorado Matters podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.